Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode on Demetrius Polyarchites with Dr. Charlotte Dunn. Hello, everyone. Today I have with me Dr. Charlotte Dunn, a lecturer in the classics at the School of Humanities and University of Tasmania, Australia. Dr. Dunn is a specialist of the Hellenistic Age, primarily focusing on the time of Alexander to the end of the Wars of the Successors. The scope of her research centers largely on the successor dynasties, their political propaganda, and their coinage. She has recently co-authored a book on one of the great players of the time entitled Demetrius the Besieger also known as Demetrius Polyarchides, and today she is joining us to discuss her work on the colorful Antigonid King. So I'd just like to say thank you for coming on to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to be talking to you about Demetrius today. Well, but before we get to Demetrius, could you talk a bit about your background as to what got you to focusing on the Hellenistic period in general, and why did you ultimately settle on writing a book about Demetrius Polyarchides? Well, I think it started with a fascination with Alexander the Great himself. I particularly was really intrigued by this personality that this person had and the way in which he was able to convince people to follow him for so long and really believe in Alexander's vision. So that sort of took me along the research path of looking at the propaganda and political image and was really interested in the strategies of how you present yourself successfully as a king. And that sort of took me down the path towards looking more into the successes. And during this time, I was studying at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and that brought me into contact with Associate Professor Pat Wheatley, who is my co-author on the Demetrius book. And Pat taught a course on Alexander, and he would always conclude this, this course with Alexander's death. And he would say, you know, this is actually the most interesting period. We're now coming to the beginning of the Hellenistic age. And he always sort of told us he wished he had time to kind of start going into the wars and the political intrigue and the personalities of the successes, but he never had time. So of course, this is very intriguing to me. And it was Pat who encouraged me to look into this Demetrius character. I think he sent me away one summer with Plutarch's Demetrius and said, read this and have a think. What what do you think about a project on Demetrius himself? And from that point on, I was pretty well hooked. And uh, oh, I should mention as well, Pat had done research on Demetrius during his own PhD. So he had completed historical narrative essentially on the first years of Demetrius's life up to the point where he assumes the diadem and becomes a king, which was enough material to fill an entire PhD thesis. And he always intended to continue down the timeline, but there was just so many chronological issues and just so, so much evidence that it was almost an entire secondary project, which is what Pat proposed to me and which ultimately became the book. We weaved those two narratives together and finished off Demetrius's life. Now, kind of connected to you, what you just mentioned about Plutarch, uh, one of our richest sources on Demetrius' life comes from a biography written by Plutarch, who paired it alongside the biography of the Roman commander Mark Antony. Could you elaborate a bit more on Plutarch's account of Demetrius and how we should interpret it in the face of other sources, uh, such as Diodorus Siculus? That's a fantastic question. Uh, one of the things we should point out regarding this time period is that fragmentary state of the evidence. So we really are extremely reliant on Plutarch, which wouldn't normally be the first choice for a historical source, perhaps. But unfortunately, in the case of Demetrius, Plutarch really is, or perhaps fortunately or unfortunately, Plutarch really does constitute our longest and most complete work on Demetrius's life. And 
I guess another really important and significant aspect that we need to keep in mind when working with Plutarch is that Mark Anthony and Demetrius for Plutarch are his negative examples. So he actually includes them amongst his illustrious lives as examples of what not to do. So how not to be a commander, how not to be a king, uh, which is not perhaps the most encouraging start to a biography. Diodorus is a really excellent counterbalance to Plutarch. And of course, his focus is on this period as a whole. So we get occasional references to Demetrius and what he's up to, but not as much focus perhaps as we'd like if you were really trying to delve into Demetrius specifically. And he's quite often interconnected with his father's career inevitably. But the issue with Diodorus, or one of the most significant things for my purposes, is that his narrative really drops off after about 302 BCE. So after that, we only have extremely fragmentary accounts or little scraps of Diodorus. So we can't rely on that to fill in those gaps, whereas we, we do have Plutarch, but he has his own challenges, I suppose. One of the best ways to think about Plutarch is that he's an excellent and very rich source of evidence, but we do need to be aware of his themes, his own moralizing, his narrative concerns. We certainly do have some examples where he seems to have perhaps not outright fabricated, but certainly manipulated uh, content in order to make sure that he can really emphasize those connections between Demetrius and Mark Antony. One really fortunate thing about Plutarch, though, is that the comparison between Antony and Demetrius, which is sort of provided as a way of summarizing the two lives, is actually has survived. So this is not the case for all of Plutarch's lives, but we're fortunate that the comparison does exist for us for Demetrius and Antony. And this is where we really see some quite useful insight into Plutarch's thoughts and his methods, because this is where he really indicates that he does understand the value in judging someone by the cultural context in their own time, essentially. So a really good example of this is that when it comes to assessing Demetrius or Anthony, he, for example, says that Demetrius's desire to be a king and to conquer and to rule over people was his inheritance that was expected of the time. This was acceptable. Whereas for Anthony, Plutarch really sees Antony's ambition as reprehensible. And for Demetrius's custom of marrying many wives concurrently, Plutarch again tells us this was the custom of the Macedonian king, so this was acceptable. And he contrasts this against Mark Antony's behavior with Octavia and Cleopatra, which again he sees as incredibly negative. So uh, we do see some attempts at historical understanding of the context in which these two commanders were operating, we do see some evidence of attempted balance. So I think that can be very helpful as well when we're trying to think about how can we use Plutarch and what sort of traps do we need to avoid. When compared to many of the successor generals like Seleucus or Ptolemy, or even his father Antigonus the One-Eyed, Demetrius is quite unique because he never personally served alongside Alexander the Great or took part in the conquest of the Persian Empire. Do you think that this had any impact in the way he behaved or portrayed himself, whether on the field of battle or in the royal court? I think this would have had quite an impact on Demetrius personally. Now, of course, we don't have a huge amount of evidence to know to what extent this would have impacted Demetrius. But I think growing up in his father's satrapy and hearing these tales of Alexander would have sort of had quite an influence on the young Demetrius. And he's, of course, being brought up as a Macedonian nobleman. We know that his father was incredibly ambitious. And although he might not have had any sort of understanding 
understanding of what was about to happen, I think that Antigonus was raising Demetrius for a very prominent position in Macedonian politics, preparing him for a role in Macedonian court in some capacity. So I certainly think that Demetrius would have been brought up from a very young age with this backdrop of Alexander's exploits, this sort of heroic campaign narrative that's going on, while at the same time his father's preparing him to take on a really important role. And I think this would have influenced him in perhaps some of his decision, maybe some of his confidence. Uh, and I certainly think that amongst all of the successes, we can say that Demetrius was the most innovative when it came to really unusual decisions. And he's not so fettered by tradition as some of the other successes were. I think this really stands out when it comes to the numismatic evidence. The other successes, even Demetrius's own father, Antigonus, are so conservative when it comes to their numismatics. They follow on the coin types of Alexander for quite some time because it's a trusted coinage that the armies will accept and it's it's not doing anything too outrageous. They're sort of showing that they're administering the kingdom just as Alexander would have wanted it to be administered and this is very advantageous to them. They continue for this for quite some time, slowly making little changes, notably, of course, putting the portrait of Alexander on their coins. But still, we always have this in reference to Alexander, whereas Demetrius, by contrast, is quite possibly the, one of the first living people in the Western world to put his image on coins. So he replaces Alexander. He replaces the traditional Olympic deities and he puts his own portrait of himself as a living king with divine attributes on the obverse of his coins and he has on the reverse his own personal patron deity Poseidon. So I feel like Demetrius felt confident enough to just completely change the narrative and I think maybe some of his upbringing had influence on that and that lack of connection to Alexander allowed him to really strike out and try new things and pave the way for other developments because people saw that perhaps we, we could do this as well. Demetrius is doing it. Of the various emerging kings of the period, Demetrius was apparently the most flamboyant in adopting the royal costume and mannerisms. Plutarch likens him to an actor on the stage when compared to someone like uh, maybe the martial Pyrrhus of Epirus or even Alexander himself, but he was the quickest to mock his rivals, uh, such as referring to Seleucus as the Elephant King or Lysimachus as treasurer in his sardonic toasts. Uh, how did Demetrius view himself as a king? And how did he view others' claims in an era where kingship was taken by the spear? I think Demetrius felt that he was inherently a king. One of the most notable things about Demetrius is that he continues in the face of adversity. So if you're familiar with his sort of career trajectory, he, you know, suffers many reversals of fortune. He at the very height of his career, he will quite often lose some significant territory. He will lose a decisive battle. But nonetheless, Demetrius never relinquishes his crown. I think he felt that his kingship was personal and inherent and was able to inspire his followers to believe this as well. That concept of spear one land was so important for the Macedonian kings. So that military success was very much connected to their right and their ability to be kings and to continue their reign. Uh, but of course, with Demetrius, we see that he actually does fail a number of times, and yet people still rally around him. He's able to inspire people to invest in him once more. And I think that is just purely by strength of personality. He obviously had access to resources as well, but 
I think right until the very end where we see that things really go wrong with Demetrius's final campaign, I think he believes that he has as much claim to kingship as any of the others, and he really does advertise that quite successfully. I think one of the most remarkable things about the Antigone dynasty is that for about three generations, we see virtually no forms of paternal or fraternal strife. Whereas the contemporary Ptolemaic and Seleucid dynasties routinely struggled with plots and attempted usurpations and parricide between family members, do you think that there was something inherent about the Antigonids that made them more stable than their rivals, at least when it comes to remaining a cohesive family unit? I think this is a great question because the dynamics of these different dynasties absolutely fascinate me and the reoccurrence of family violence is so prominent amongst all of them except for the Antigonids and they are notably a cohesive family unit as you say and it's actually something that is unanimously commented on by the ancient sources so they all seem to find this quite remarkable and they all promote this idea that the Antigonids were just known to be very stable so I think part of this might come down to just personality of course but I also see some evidence of this being something of a perhaps a deliberate policy that was instigated by Antigonus himself. I think we can see this in references to, for example, Antigonus allegedly promoting the close relationship between himself and his son in an anecdote that we find in Plutarch, where Demetrius is said to have come back from hunting, still holding weapons, and he goes to greet his father without you know, putting aside his weapons first and he embraces his father. And Antigonus makes a point to note this to the embassy that has arrived to the court and he points out how he has no reason to fear his son. So I think Antigonus had this idea that stability was the way forward and that was the only real way to achieve the aims that he wanted to achieve. He may well have been influenced by what he witnessed under Alexander's reign, of course, with leaving behind no obvious heir, was absolutely disastrous. He may well have observed with Philip II how that internal family strife caused a lot of instability in the kingdom, and it had, of course, historically for the Macedonian dynasty. I think Antigonus tried really hard to avoid that as much as possible. We also see that Antigonus marries his son very at a very unusually young age for a Macedonian groom. So we think Demetrius was married to Philo at around the age perhaps 15 or 16, and of course, this was a political match. Antigonus wanted to connect himself to the family of Antipater, who was the region of Macedonia at the time. So of course, this was politically important. But I also think Antigonus had this foresight to know that his son should also have a son or an heir. They should basically achieve this as quickly as possible so that that son has the opportunity to grow up and then we can present a stable dynasty to the army, to our followers. And in fact, this is something that the Macedonians apparently found very encouraging when Demetrius does arrive to take over the kingdom. They cite the fact that he has a growing son who has military training as a very good thing about Demetrius. So they're looking forward to a year without a succession crisis, perhaps in the future. The institution of having two co-kings, I think, was also really important for the Antigonids. Antigonus could have easily made Demetrius his heir, but he chose instead to have his son crowned king at the same time. So perhaps this was also an attempt to mitigate any concerns over this idea that once Antigonus was gone, the, the cause would completely dissolve just as it was doing so often in this time period. So I think he really wanted to advertise that stability. And as for... Demetrius's many wives and many children. 
Once again, it really does appear that the antagonists presented themselves as a united family unit. We do see some comments in the scholarship about uh, perhaps some retrospective comments about rivalry between the wives or this idea that Phyla might have been insulted by Demetrius's later matches. But I don't see much evidence for this in the sources. I think Phyla played a really important role. We see her showing up to, for example, celebrate the wedding of her daughter. We see her being dispatched to Macedonia to sort of act as a political go-between between her husband Demetrius and her brother Cassander to sort of facilitate that relationship. I think all of the women in Demetrius's family knew their role specifically, and there was no reason to, to have a rivalry with the other wives, regardless of perhaps whatever their personal feelings may have been. And finally, one thing that I do find really unusual, perhaps, and quite interesting, is that Demetrius is said to have had a daughter with his mistress Lamia, whom he called Phyla. So I think people have found this quite unusual, and we're, we've always wondered what, what was going on there. But I think perhaps this was perhaps intended as a compliment, uh, as a way of including this this daughter in the family as a whole as well. Lamia was, of course, a really important uh, person in Demetrius's life. And this, this daughter may well have ended up with all of the other Antigone children that seem to have been raised with Stratonike, Demetrius's mother. So I think there were little strategies in place that helped facilitate this stability, this lack of violence. One more theory that I was considering as well is that of all of the successes, Demetrius was fairly unstable at different points in his reign. So he never seemed to hold on to any particular territory for a consistently long time. I do wonder if that if the, the children of Demetrius didn't really feel any need to have a rivalry with one another to in order to inherit Demetrius's possessions because they simply did not have the opportunity to sort of solidify his control for long enough that it would have constituted a really excellent inheritance that someone might want to claim one way or the other. So perhaps I, I wonder if that had an effect as well. Whereas by contrast, we see with Ptolemy, for example, Ptolemy I, he pretty much has that hold over Egypt fairly stably for a very long time. I wonder if that was more of a motivating factor for the sort of family squabbles that we see in the Ptolemaic dynasty. Demetrius is renowned for being one of antiquity's great generals, but ironically, he's also well known for suffering significant defeats, such as the battles of Gaza, Ipsus, and uh, most famously, the Siege of Rhodes, where he earned his uh, ill-fitting nickname. But in retrospect, uh, what is your assessment of Demetrius as a commander? And are there any contributions we can attribute to him as having impacted the way Hellenistic warfare was conducted thereafter? This is such a fascinating question. I think with this one, Plutarch certainly has a lot to answer for here. Uh, he certainly presented Demetrius as showing a great deal of promise with when it came to matters of warfare. But then, of course, with some of those defeats, those, those incredibly terrible battles that result in an absolute disaster for Demetrius. Plutarch really presents this as Demetrius's fault. So for example, with, with Ipsus, he shows that Demetrius was on the cusp of victory, but he threw it away sort of in pursuit of personal ambition and arrogance. So I've looked at this for quite some time. And I think my assessment is slightly more balanced. I think that Demetrius was overcome by a superior strategy in this case. It wasn't so much that he was being reckless, but that the strategies of the coalition, Lysimachus and Seleucus, were actually just by chance the better option on the day. They were able to make use of those elephants and 
prevent Demetrius from returning to the battlefield. But of course, this is such a decisive moment in Demetrius's life. And we have that pathos-ridden scene of antagonists dying on the battlefield, believing to the last that Demetrius will be able to come back and save him and, and return to his father. But of course, Demetrius has no choice but to flee, which is such a cowardly thing to do as far as Plutarch's narrative presents it. But I think it was more of a strategic failing on the antagonist side compared to the superiority of the forces on Lysimachus and Seleucus's side. So as a commander, I would say that Plutarch certainly gives Demetrius a pretty damning assessment of his strategy. And this is also somewhat the case with Rhodes as well. This is presented as Demetrius's defeat, but on the other hand, we also see the Rhodians are inspired by their escape from Demetrius, that they are inspired to create the Colossus of Rhodes. And it's, uh, you know, an unprecedentedly enormous artistic project that captured the imagination of the ancient world once it was built. And the reason that they are said to have been inspired to do this is because they are so grateful that they escaped the wrath of Demetrius and his siege machines. So, And we also see other little anecdotes of Demetrius just being awe-inspiring when it came to matters of war, particularly siege warfare, of course. And we see that after about 304, no city is really able to resist Demetrius. Some don't even try. In fact, we have quite a few references to places just immediately surrendering upon hearing that Demetrius is approaching with these frightening machines of his own invention. So with that in mind, I think that Similar to Alexander, Demetrius's reputation did precede him at certain points in his career, and this in itself could win him the victory. But it's those catastrophic failures that present us with this idea that Demetrius was not successful or that he was reckless at certain points. In terms of his impact, I would say that on the whole, he was fairly successful. But of course, we have his final campaign, which is so disastrous for Demetrius that it's hard to separate that from an assessment of him as a commander as a whole. And his, certainly that is the military engagement, which is most troubling for just trying to figure out what Demetrius' strategy was, what he was attempting to achieve. It just seems like bad decision followed bad decision. In terms of what this impact ultimately was, I think we see with his son, a much more conservative policy, not just in military matters, but also in his administration of the Macedonian kingdom, perhaps in his personal life as well. I think Antigonus Gennatus really responded to Demetrius's policies by having a much more stable policy, which is quite interesting. It's like he went in a very different direction, having watched what his father had done and perhaps goes for a much more conservative approach, which is very interesting as well. But I certainly say there, there was no one else quite like Demetrius. Uh, he certainly did things on a grand scale. And even Plutarch has to admit that when it came to times of war, Demetrius was incredibly focused and serious, and he liked to be extremely well prepared. So he had more than what he needed, and he was incredibly dedicated to this. So yeah, I think that's what that would be my assessment of Demetrius as a commander. And despite his rather bleak end within Seleucus's Velvet Prison, uh, Demetrius remains one of the most fascinating and colorful characters in the entire Hellenistic period, never mind the early chapters of it, but I think for now we can conclude our discussion on the Besieger, and I encourage all listeners to check out Demetrius the Besieger to fill in the gaps where my original series on the Wars of the Diadochoi did not cover. Now that the book is out, uh, are there any projects currently in the works on your end, and is there anything you wish to plug or have linked for the audience? Uh, I am 
in the preliminary stages of doing some research on the interdynastic violence that we see in these family dynasties. So we'll see a bit more of the antagonists, of course, uh, within that. So that's a project that you may see emerge in the next couple of years. But we do have another collaboration of Pat Wheatley and myself. We have contributed a chapter in a work called Alexander and Propaganda, which is due in the next few months of this year, um, which is with Routledge. And Pat and I have looked into the coinage of Alexander and his successes. And of course, Demetrius will feature there as one of the standouts of numismatic developments of this age. So if you're interested in knowing more about, uh, I guess, the political messages and the use of coins during this time and how significant they were, I could definitely recommend that. One other project which I'm hoping to see published very soon is a collaboration between myself and Dr. Catherine Hall of the University of Otago. Now, Catherine is actually a GP. She's in the medical field and she's also a classicist. And we have been working through the idea that we may be able to perhaps diagnose Demetrius uh, retrospectively, of course, which causes its own problems. But we would like to know if there are any mental health or personality factors that have influenced Demetrius's perhaps more unusual decisions or perhaps some of his personality. So Catherine and I have explored this in a conference paper, and now we've written this up for publication. So if you're interested at all in perhaps the idea of diagnosing historical figures, uh, you can look out for that as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I would like to just say, you know, thank you so much for joining me on the show. And uh, I'll be making sure to include all those links in the podcast description for any of you listeners to try to peruse at your own leisure. But in the meanwhile, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age podcast.